police in the morning. Welcome, B-Movie fans, to another B-Movie interview. I'm Paul, and joining me today is a man who has worked as a writer, director, actor, and pretty much every other job you can think of in in the film industry. Um, Michael Worth. And he's here to talk to talk today about his film catfish blues michael welcome to the show hey thanks for having me on i appreciate it definitely thanks for coming um so how long have you been working in the film industry i've been here in los angeles um since 90 92 and i did uh came out came out here and uh, mostly, to, you know, I wanted to make, I've been making films since I was a little kid back in Northern California, but I came out to uh, LA to try to get it the make the professional leap. And so I started, uh, kind of got right into acting uh, right off the bat. It was the first thing that kind of got thrown my way. Uh, so I started doing a bunch of, uh, bunch of uh, bit parts and TV and um, some, uh, you know, did the usual route of just banging on doors, trying to get that, get in that way. And then, um, I ended up getting like a three-picture deal at this production company called PM Entertainment that was sort of at the forefront of doing the kind of Roger Corman, I mean, Roger Corman doing it much longer, but just the idea of, of cranking out a movie a month and doing them for next to nothing at the time. And and the home video market was just starting to boom. So it was a, it was a good uh, productive field for these guys. Very cool. Yeah, interesting times. It's like nowadays, it seems like every movie has to take like at least a year to make but yeah yeah well it depends you know i mean you're right there's a there's the the the, the whole dynamic of filmmaking has changed so much since i started in this you know i mean i've been out here since i was you know 18 years old but it's it's changed so much so since you've had such an extensive career in filmmaking what would you say is your favorite aspect of uh, making movies I've kind of, you know, I've gone through phases, but I've, I've sort of come around to really enjoy uh, directing for the most part, only because I've I've learned to love almost every aspect of filmmaking. What I like about filming is how it's such a, a collaboration of different art forms. You know, you have production designers, you have acting, you have music, you have writing, you have all these different things. And, you know, I just, uh, for whatever reason, I've got an interest in all of them. So, um for me, the directing is kind of nice because it's learning how to tie everything together, and uh, so that's kind of where where sort of I'm I'm going with it. And and um, but I still fluctuate. I'm you know every year. I mean, most of my bread and butter is is from acting jobs. And um, but you know, I mean, it's uh, I would I would definitely I think there are two different sides of your brain. There's a part of your brain that's very emotional and 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 much more expressive that the actor kind of migrates towards and then the, the other part of you which is a little more analytical and you you tend to have to think things through a little bit as the director definitely cool that's one of the cool things about i guess being a jack of all trades in filmmaking you kind of get to express each part of your personality it seems yeah i mean you got to be careful of it there's i mean to be honest with you it's it's like you you know it's easy to i i like to learn the other facets because when that way when i hire other people to do them i already have an understanding of it you know i mean i've been in and one of the films you were going to want to talk about today which is catfish blues is a perfect example of going back to that almost one-man band approach to making a movie so i mean i i try not to do that too much because it's you know when you got the money and you have the time and the resources i like collaboration so 
but um, every once in a while, you know, it's it's not a bad idea to just go out there and just try and make something with as little as you can. Definitely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Catfish Blues? Um, what's the general plot of the film? Well, Catfish Blues uh, started from, as a sort of an homage in a way to a favorite movie of mine as a kid, which is called Harold and Maude. And it's with uh, Ruth Gordon and Bud Court. And it was about a relationship between this 18-year-old man and this woman in her 80s. And so I decided I was going to take it in a little di different direction. But it was I wanted to write this story that dealt with this young boy who's 14 years old and a woman in her 90s. And the reason I, I wanted to do this was because I wasn't because I had this story, per se, in my head. But because my, my grandmother actually plays the woman in the movie. And... She has been an inspiration to me since as far back as I can remember. So a good friend of mine, a guy named David Tadman, who's a producer, he, um, he put up a very, 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 very nominal amount of money and said, look, if you want to make this idea work and bring it to life and put my son in it as the, as the kid, he goes, I'll, I'll fork up the money. So the only way I was able to, to get it done is this money that we had for this film was about as much as most films spend on their lunch money in a day you know we we said well if i go out there and just return to my super eight filmmaking roots and just just do everything myself then we can probably get it done so that's how it started in the and the film to sort of answer your question in the long way is a story about a, a young boy who leaves his home for the summer because his parents are trying to deal with their relationship and he finds himself kind of getting lost in this small town and then he meets this old woman that spends her days looking for lost pets. And ultimately, she's very eccentric and out there. And they sort of form this bond together. And, and this, it's a coming-of-age story in this small town of, with this uh, boy and this old woman. Very cool. It's always an interesting dynamic when you've got a kid with um, an elderly figure. They're kind of... They, it seems like they both kind of get to learn from each other and just see things from either a new point of view that the kid's never seen for, seen before or the elderly person kind of gets to remember back when they were young. So it's always kind of cool seeing that dynamic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you're, you hit it on the head there. You know, I mean, that's that's kind of what and I do this actually that I mean, that theme pops up in a lot of my films in some way or another where there's this sort of cross generational relationship and. And this one's definitely the same thing. In fact, there's a an actor in the film who's sort of playing the middle ground between the two. This guy, Tim Thomerson, who you might have seen in some movies. He was the star of Trancers. He was on Common Valor and Rhinestone. And he's a, he's a good friend of mine. And he sort of plays this sort of connective sort of device in a way between the, the kid and the old woman. So, um, you know, there's some... Again, you know, the, the, these movies are, for me, when I do them, these smaller films... You know, you get these big movies that people come along and say, hey, we want you to write a movie about, you know, um, Bigfoot fighting, you know, the, the abominable snowman. And so you have a certain dynamic you got to work in. But there are times where I get lucky and somebody comes up to me and it may not be a lot of money. It may not be a lot of time, but they say, what do you want to write right now? And so I get to sometimes dig into the recesses of my brain and maybe express an idea or a philosophy or something in an interesting way that I wouldn't otherwise get a chance to. Definitely. What um you mentioned Harold and Maud, but um are there any other films that you would say inspired Catfish Blues or any life events? Well, I mean the the inspiration again goes back to my my grandmother who I grew up with, and and I've had 
when I was a kid, I used to make Super 8 films, and she would actually come along and, and, and help me make these films with my, my, my friends. And I always remember this one particular story. For instance, we went to this place in Berkeley called the Lawrence Hall of Science, where we had my friends and I had put a dummy together, and we wanted to throw it off the top of the Lawrence Hall of Science and make it look like a guy was falling off the, the building and hitting a car below. So we came up to her, and she drove us up to the top of the hill, because obviously we couldn't drive at the time. <laughs> And uh, we said to her, Grandma, we need you to take this dummy up to the top of that roof and throw it off. And then she said, well, why do you want me to do that? And I said, because they won't question an old lady. <laughs> so she, she's, I mean, that, she, her, her being with me in my life and, and giving me so many memorable experiences is sort of what I, I, in a way, made this movie to sort of pay tribute to her because I wanted her to, you know, to put her on film. And I had actually put her in film already. I did a movie called God's Ears that, um, that I had given her a small part in. And, um, so this, I basically wrote this around her and, and films like Stand By Me and, and, you know, Harold and Maude, et cetera. They, you know, these are like a few of many films that inspire me as a filmmaker, but just sort of tonally, that's how this, this film, for instance, for me was, was trying to um, emulate in a way. That's really cool. Like, did you ever think that when making your Super 8 films with your friends and your grandmother that you'd be making a um, actual feature film with your grandmother so many years later? Well, that's that's it. no, not with her. That's a good point, and I think that's part of why, and it's part of why I, I enjoy this so much. I always knew from the very beginning that I wanted to be in, involved in filmmaking. I thought originally. I wanted to be an animator because Ray Harryhausen was like my idol. And I was like, I want to do what he does. I want to make monsters. And, and then, of course, as I, was, as, as I was getting older and getting out of high school and about ready to go to L.A., I realized that wasn't exactly going to be the most lucrative direction to go in. So luckily, I enjoyed film as an actor and as a, as a filmmaker in general. So I was just took off and just sort of to see where it stuck. But um, I never, yeah, I would have, at that time, I would have never thought that my uh, grandmother would be shooting a movie with me. And as a matter of fact, as we're doing this interview, in two days, I'm going up to Northern California with the crew and cast, and we're starting a, a follow-up to a film we did a couple of years ago that we're shooting in San Francisco, and my grandmother's going to make an appearance in that one, too. <laughs> and she turns 95 in uh, February next month, so. She's kind of like the Stan Lee of your film, has like a cameo and everything. That's true. I'm, I'm, I'm milking her for all she's worth. <laughs> That's awesome, though. Everything kind of goes full circle. It's, uh... yeah. yeah. So you said about um, making uh, short films, like independent films, getting to be more creative and kind of making it in your own vision. Do you think there are um, any other advantages to making an independent film over a um, big like Hollywood production? Well, I think independent films in it's such a, that term is so weird because it used to have one particular meaning back in the back in the seventies when you had guys like John Cassavetes and Scorsese and those guys when they were just starting. An independent film generally meant somebody that went out, raised money by themselves, put the film together, shot it the way they wanted to do it, edited it, went around with copies of the film to different theaters and showed them at each theater for a week or two weeks, and and they would. You know, they would rent the theater out and then they would take the revenue. You know, there was a very sort of uh, specific uh, definition of what an independent film was. And most of the time it was usually actors that didn't have big names, etc. But 
it then took on a, a new meaning now today. I mean, I, I look at independent film and it could be a $20 million film, you know, that you know for a fact is guaranteed to get a studio releasing it. So it's, it's such a weird saying now, but I think there's, there is a revival in the sense of, of independent films today, particularly with the way technology is. And, you know, you can buy these beautiful full sensor cameras like the Sony a7S II, these DSLR cameras for, I mean, you know, for, I mean, still they're, $2,500, $3,000, but they just shoot incredible, beautiful images if you know what you're doing. And and then if you have a good story and you got some people that are behind you, you know, you can, anybody can go out and make a, make a movie. Now, the other side of it, which is when you finish your film, that's something a lot of people don't dive into. You can get, you can get some guys with great ideas and great actors and, and put together a really nice piece of film, but the distribution element of it is another big side to it. Now, granted, just in the last couple of years, that has shifted drastically too in the favor of the filmmaker. There was a point where you had to, you know, you had a film made, what do you do with it? You know, you got to knock on all these distributors' doors and hope they take it. Today, that's not the case anymore. Today, you can essentially, if you know what you're doing, you can promote your own film online, you can take it directly to whether it's iTunes or, you know, Netflix or you know, whatever, Vimeo, uh, Amazon through an aggregator, which is basically somebody that takes the middleman out, which used to be the um, distributor. And now you can essentially, if you have the money and the resources and the time, you can become a self-sufficient movie studio. And so it is, it's a, it's a very different world out there. And I'm still learning it because it keeps changing all the time. Definitely. Yeah, a lot of good points. Um, I've actually noticed that the term B-movie doesn't have, doesn't really have a solid um, definition anymore either. Like, you'll see movies that are low budget, and it's like a multi-million dollar, dollar film. It's just that it's not as big as some of the Hollywood ones, and the production company isn't as well known as, like, um, Lionsgate or Disney or anything like that. So, it's amazing how a lot of these terms are still used, but you think about it, it's like, is it what does that even mean anymore like it's it it's crazy world it seems no and i think you're right i think actually i think it's a good point because i think b movie what used to have obviously it had a very depth you know a very uh, defined sort of um of a meaning in the sense that it was there was the a films there were the films that would come out with the stars and then the films that would play on the second bill to them were the B films, you know. And I think that, and they were usually cheaper and, you know, very, you know, no-name actors or monster films or very genre-specific, you know, where there was the Hot Rod movies or whatever. And today, you're right. I think that's a really good point because I think today there are low-budget films, but they don't, they're not really per se B movies anymore. And I, I think it's kind of like... It's almost like you can't really make spaghetti westerns anymore. You can't really make black exploitation films anymore. You can't make Bruce exploitation films. I just did a, a documentary in Hong Kong on all the Bruce Lee exploitation films. You know, I mean, they were all of these things were relegated to a, uh, a specific almost period, and that really today they don't. You can't really make them again. You can make fun of them. You can talk about them. You can, uh, you know, do a satire on them. But I don't think you can really. You don't, you're right, you don't really make B-movies anymore. You make low-budget or big-budget movies. Or bad or good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Were there any unexpected challenges when making um, Catfish Blues? Well, Catfish Blues, like I said, it, it was very different than anything I had done in my professional career because it was the first time I went with 
you know, no money to, uh, I mean, I'm talking no money where we were, we had a crew that was our cast and crew at the biggest was probably eight, nine people on that, that shoot. I had been inspired by a guy named Ed Burns who does, he's a name actor and he's, he came along about seven years ago when, when the, the 5d camera came out, which was uh, a, a DSLR that shot, very film-like images. And he started making movies that he was making for, uh, he was shooting the films for like 10,000 or 15,000 or $20,000, something like that. And then he would, he would have another like 80,000 that he would use in post. So he's doing these whole films for a hundred thousand. But I thought to myself, well, what if I went out and started shooting these films for, you know, 20,000, 25,000, whatever. And that's what I did. I went out and did a handful of these movies. I did one. The first one I did was called bring me the head of Lance Henriksen. And it's a, a fairly ambitious all-star cast of a, a movie that was a com this this very uh, comedic take on ageism in Hollywood. And I've actually been working on this film for almost five years now, trying to get it cut and put together. And it's it was epic in the sense that it was all improvisational. Like I would go in and I wouldn't tell each actor. I would tell each actor what I wanted them to do or try to accomplish, but the other actor never would never know what the other actor was doing. So it was a very, it opened the door up to a lot of expression and, and all this crazy stuff. So it's taken a while to pull together, but it still had, you know, some money to it. And there was still, I had some time, but with Catfish Blues, it was like, we went out to Chico State, which is in Northern California. And uh, we shot this whole film, which we did in eight days. Wow. And, um, yeah, it wasn't easy. It was eight days, like I said, and uh, and it was a <laughs> it was very fulfilling in a way, in the sense that Max Tadman, who plays the young boy in the story, he um, he sort of took on an almost uh, life imitating art sort of a, a role in this, as he was he had never really been out of his house in a long you know at all in his life, and it was like a first time his dad took him out and really to a place that was different than what he was used to and and so he kind of emulated the, the character in a lot of ways and, and him and my grandmother got bonded a lot and so it was it was a really fun experience to have just to but i never actually intended for the film to even be released i said look for this kind of money we're gonna go out we're gonna have a good time we'll put a little film together we'll take it to some festivals and it's probably about all we'll do with it and uh but it's actually kind of taken on a, <clears throat> a life of its own and and getting some good uh, feedback and play very cool what do you think is the most uh, unique aspect of Catfish Blues? I don't know. What's, uh, I don't know. What's, I guess everybody might find a different thing about it unique. From my vantage point, I, what I think is unique about it, again, is the amount of money we spent on it. You know what I mean? We spent nothing on it. I mean, I made this whole film for, it's a, and it's a feature-length film. It's not even a short. We did the whole thing for less than $8,000. Wow. And, and I, shot it, I shot it on a 7D camera. We went out there and uh, we had, a, you know, we had some sound equipment and, you know, we used what prof our professional experience to, to put it together. But we went out and, and shot it as if we were, you know, a group of, of film students that were out on a weekend trying to make a, a you know, our, our final essay or something, you know what I mean? So um, that's how we, uh, that's how we had it. And in a way it was the only way that could work because, one of the things I learned about doing low budget films, for instance, is if you're at a location and then at one point you want to move to another location when you have all these cameras and cables and lights and, and crew, I can tell you just going 50 feet, 
can take hours. But when you're a tiny, small crew with a tripod, maybe a stabilizer and a couple little cameras, it takes you five minutes to walk across the street and, and shoot the next shot. So there is a, an expediency to being a no-budget film and a low-budget crew. You have to you have to know what you're writing for. That's it's a big trick. You know, if you write, you say, oh, somebody gets ten thousand dollars, goes, I'm going to go out and make a movie. Well, you know, you just got to be careful. You don't write, you know, car crashes and, you know, big brawls and fight scenes and, you know, makeup and all that kind of stuff because you'll just, you know, you'll kill yourself trying to get it done. So I think back to your question about what's unique about it. I guess what's unique about it is the fact that it, it got finished. And that's one, that's one thing. Um, but I think it's such a I think it's such an improvisational film, not so much in the sense of just in like, oh, let's go out and improvise dialogue because a lot of it had to be because my, my grandmother couldn't really remember dialogue. So luckily I would just feed it to her off camera sometimes or she would just sort of get the rough ballpark of it. And, and Max, God bless him, he, uh, he was on top of it because he would just roll with that. Whatever she threw out at him, he would just come back with something. So but I think that I think what's really, if I, in fact, to answer your question, what's really unique about this film is those two. I think Max... Tadman and, and Lois Stewart is named my grandmother. Those two together were like a unique combination. Very cool. It's amazing how every aspect kind of comes together to make a film. Like the actors is finding the setting, and it's always it's always unique hearing people's experience, and especially in independent films, like you learn a little bit from, like especially in this show, we've learned so much from everyone we've spoken to. It's um, definitely really neat. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, like we said, you know, we were talking about earlier, it's such a collaborative art form and there's no real one way to make a movie. You know, I was, I had a, I have a film that's uh, premiering at the, um, at the Sedona Film Festival in February and it's a, a movie I directed and um, it, it's one of those films where, you know, in the end, and you hear this a lot with you know, people that work on bigger films, even whether it's Ridley Scott or whoever, you kind of lose a little bit of your, your creativity in the sense that, you know, other producers pipe in and they, they, they come in and want to have their cut of it or do this or that to it or add this music or that. So that, that was a, it was a film that I kind of had that a little bit of that experience with, you know, where there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. But it made me realize that, when you sit here and have discussions about, well, we think we should do this, and somebody else says, well, we think we should cut it this way, or let's have it end this way, you realize that there's no, no one had the right answer. It's, in fact, each one of, let's say, four of us could re-edit a film a certain way, the way we like it, and there's always going to be somebody that likes one version, and somebody that likes the other version, somebody like, you know, you just never know. So it just becomes a matter of, granted, you can have really bad movies, and sometimes it happens, you can have really good movies. But in many cases, it's just that you have really different movies. And I think that um, I think there's always an audience for something out there. What qualities do you think make a great film? And could you give us some examples of, of films that you would consider great? Well, that's interesting because, again, that comes back to what we were just talking about. I, I, I feel as a kid, there were some movies that I thought were the greatest that today I go, I just I'm not seeing it, you know, and there are films today that I just love that as a kid I would have never gotten, for instance. So I think we our perspective changes. But I, I do believe that if there's a consistency to it, I don't think a great film is made by accident. That you can, as a as a great filmmaker, you can try and harness accidents and use them in your film. But even that isn't an accident because you're you're having the knowledge to say 
that was a funny mistake that you made or, or, you know, you know, like, you know, something like that that you use in the film and now everybody loves it. You know, I know that scene, for instance, and it always gets used as a pretty woman where she's reaching for the ring and, and Richard Gere closes the box on Julia Roberts. She starts laughing and you can just tell it wasn't like she didn't think he was really going to do that. And so that was her real response. And so sometimes as a, as a, a filmmaker, it's having the knowledge of, of, of capturing those moments that, it's not that you're saying, wow, this is a great moment, but you know well enough to, that the audience is going to look at it and go, that was unique, or that was, uh, you couldn't have, you couldn't remake that moment. And so I think that's, for me, when I look at films, like I can, if I was to sit here and ramble off some of my favorite films to you, you would go, God, they sound completely different from each other. You know, whether it's, you know, The Seven Samurai or Enter the Dragon or La Ventura, which is a Michelangelo and Tignoni film, which is very different. It's this bizarre film about this black and old black and white film about this woman that goes missing on an island and her boyfriend and, and her friend go looking for her and, and, and then <laughs> end up having a relationship with each other while looking for this girlfriend and, and they never even find You know what I mean? It's like this very bizarre, but I love this film. I mean, I have something about it clicks and I can watch it over and over again. So, I mean, in terms of genre, I don't know if there's, you know, you know anything that I particularly fall for. But as, as far as being good, I think if just the filmmaker, honestly, the, there's no guarantees. But if it's the filmmaker is honestly trying to express something inside of himself and it might be he's trying to express loneliness or humor or whatever it is. And if he's really making that and it's, you know, like normally going to be a group of people, but it's normally if they're, that's their intent You'll get a good film, or some, or parts of it will be good. There's, but I'm I'm out here in this this business, and I know what it's like to make films that that people go out and they start with the best of intentions, and the next thing you know, they're just caught up. And and I, I don't always fault them because once a film gets going, you also got to keep in mind that you just you start the top the clock starts ticking, and you're you're going on and on and on, and suddenly instead of focusing on what is maybe great about the film, you find yourself going. What about lunch? Okay, are we going to get done in time by this? And, you know, I got this guy yelling at me. And, you know what, the light's coming through that window weird. Let's spend half an hour trying to fix it when in the, in the end result, that's nobody's going to be paying attention, you know. So, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting business to try and do well. Because when you fail, boy, you fail in front of lots of people. It's not like you just fail in front of your boss and then nobody else sees it. You know, you're, <laughs> you, you drop the ball in an audience and it's tough, you know. Definitely. That's one thing I always I I have a lot of respect for just about anybody who goes out and makes a film because you are putting yourself out there in front of as many people who will see the film. So it's it's definitely a respectful kind of thing to make your own film. At least I've always thought so. And going to a little bit of what you were saying, it seems like a really good filmmaker can take a simple idea and make it entertaining and and worth watching like you'll see films have like all sorts of um i guess unique is sort of a relative term but it'll have like you know all these weird looking aliens and special effects and it'll be terrible but you'll see like certain films especially like low budget films where it'll be two people in a room it's like wow this this was meaningful and i really enjoyed it so i think it's a lot of the person and like how they tell the story rather than so much the story in itself Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, you just, you know, you hit the nail on the head, those those two people in a room, you know, that, 
that in fact when those movies do get made and it's it's usually by somebody that really is trying hard to to make something interesting now there are, there are people out there that are pretentious you know and they try to make some piece of art or whatever because they want to get you know patted on the back or whatever it might be but for the most part you're right i mean on there's i mean look i'll t- i'll tell you i'll give you an example i i go to see a movie like the avengers and i love it I get caught up in it you go for a ride you know it's fun but the truth of it is there's you, when you sit back and analyze it in a way, it's like you can see this sort of lazy art to it. You know what I mean? And I'm not, I, I had a good time watching it, whatever, so I'm not going to sit here and criticize the fact that it entertained me. But you, you'll like watch, for instance, it'll be uh, five people sitting around a, a table, and then all the camera's doing, for instance, is just moving in circles around everybody. That's it. That's the whole, that's the choreography. That's it. They probably spent 15 days shooting it. That they have you know multi multi millions of dollars in the scene and the camera just that's that's their way of making it look good and then you go back and you watch you watch a film like High and Low by Akira Kurosawa and just watch the first half of the film the way the camera gets positioned and the way it moves and the way it captures and the staging of the the actors and you go holy crap I mean this is like you can just tell that the, the construction of this movie was so much more thought out in in a sense of a, like a ballet you know. And it doesn't read that way. I mean, you can obviously have contrived staging sometimes where you go, oh, my God, I'm just like so aware of the camera right now. But that's that's the genius of somebody like a Kurosawa where, where they can go off and use the camera in ways that you, you at the end of the movie, you're like, oh, I, I wasn't even paying attention to the camera. But boy, was that beautiful, you know. Um, and you're right. So it's today we throw millions of dollars at very jazzy lit sort of quickly edited sort of hodgepodge you know and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but there's no guarantee that's for sure definitely you can always tell the difference between a film that's made to tell a story and one that's basically a special effects reel for two hours yeah and you can only deal with special effects sometimes so much you know what i mean like even the best like i mean like a guardians of the galaxy you know it's a great it's that's a special effects movie, but everybody loved it because it was. I think they really took the time to make the characters fun and interesting, and and people got into it. You know, definitely. Like you can like special effects, like computer generated stuff. Like I, I know a lot of people that are real big into indie films. They're always criticizing it. It's like, nah, you know, that stuff is cheap. But I think if it's used correctly, it can it can kind of it can enhance the artistic vision but it's not something to rely on like i remember when um video games started coming out in 3d um some of them, there were some games that were kind of dumb it was just um basically showing things off but other games i remember playing and thinking wow this everything works together the way you're the way you're controlling the character the way the cinematic scenes go and it was it was a work of art and everything kind of worked together so I think sure. that, like, I don't really think that special effects or having a good budget necessarily makes a movie better or worse. I think, once again, it's um, going back to whether or not somebody wants to tell a story and whether or not they want to um, basically, whether or not they have an artistic vision with it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I mean, you know, Star Wars is usually a pretty good example. You know, you've got the the films that you can tell the, I mean, I mean, whatever a person's feeling of star Wars is, you know, they've got certain ones that are really well made, you know, and, and it's, you can usually tell when 
somebody was trying to focus on the characters and their growth and their interest level rather than the next TIE fighter fight. Because then when you have that, and then you do have the, the great you know moment at the end when Luke Skywalker's fighting with Darth Vader and then finally Darth Vader like has that turning moment and picks the Emperor up and throws him down. You know, you're so involved at that point, you just it's the greatest moment in the world, you know? And you, you forget the special effects. I mean, even today you can look back on some of those effects and go, oh, those kind of look cheap and, you know, compared to what we're used to. But because emotionally you were so invested, they're the best ones, you know? Oh, yeah, most definitely. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to go out and create their own film? I think the best thing to do is just go out and do it. And I and I and and what I mean by that is go out and try and just make films. Do little ones at first, play around, write a short film, you know, use whatever means you have. If it's just a cheap video camera or your, your I mean, I get, you know, most people have iPhones today and these these phones are amazing. As a matter of fact, I um I just finished a film called The Butterfly Guard. It's this a mixed martial arts story about these two fighters that are on opposite ends of the world and they're it's like the two weeks before they're about to fight each other and it just follows them through this um, this this training that they're going through, all this psychological warfare they're doing to themselves. And we had to go shoot some stuff at a real fighting event. And I, I had two cameras, but one of the cameras I used was an iPhone. You know, the, there's a movie called Tangerine that came out uh, last year that was shot entirely on an iPhone. They have mounts that you can put a lens on it. They had a lens on it. It wasn't just the camera lens. But um, so anyways, you, you know, my, my feeling is that because the best learning experience is just the experience itself. Uh, I have nothing against film schools. You know, I mean, some people want to go in there and learn, but I, and, and they like the schooling environment, but I just feel like if you really, your goal is to go out and, and make a movie, just go make some, you know, learn the business you know, read some books, figure it out. Um, watch a lot of movies, read a lot of scripts. Uh, that's really what I would, I would, that's, you know, that's how I started just making super eight movies. And then, uh, and I, in a way, that's kind of what I'm doing again. I've kind of gone full circle. I've come back to this place where I've got my, I go out and work for the studios where, you know, go for work with the ABC or Paramount or whoever, go make my paycheck and then come try and raise a nominal amount of money and just say, Hey, I got this idea for a, a film I want to shoot. Let's, let's try and put it together and go shoot it. Cause today you can actually do that. You know, you might now, you might not get all your money back. It, it depends on what you put into it. But if you know, you can get films done. Definitely. It's amazing because you can look at films that were made back when technology wasn't nearly as good and you'll watch them and just think, wow, this is amazing. Like they had, they didn't even, they didn't even have like nearly as good of technology, but it's just, it stands out and it's, it's fun. And I think, I think even if a film isn't great quality, you can still find something to appreciate in it. If even just because it was somebody's vision. Sometimes somebody's vision is um, objectively bad, and it's not a great film, but you can kind of appreciate it. Sure, and I, like I said, we can always find things entertaining or enlightening in all kinds of different work. But you hit it on the head in that you know, back in the day when when you know you were actually shooting on film stock, you had to be a lot more precious about your choices. You know, you really thought your take through. You thought what you were doing through. Because once you rolled that film through, it wasn't like, ah, let's do another one. You know, it's like you you were like, well, we're running low on film, you know, running low on money, whatever it was. So um, I think there was a certain sense of, uh, and there, I think there was a, a sense of preciousness, but I think there was also a sense of risk back then. Like when you had Scorsese and Cassavetes and, and De Palma and these guys coming up at that time in the 70s, particularly people were taking some crazy risks. 
And that was a time where the studios, I don't really do it anymore, but were turning over the uh, turning over the reins to the director a lot more. It became a hip thing to do, like, oh, Scorsese, here's your money, go make your movie and give it to us when you're done, you know? <laughs> yeah, different times. Yeah. So this is a question we always ask to everybody in our interviews. It's uh, one that Corey and I debate about a decent nope. bit. Um, what is your opinion on hairless cats? Oh, yeah, man. I think I love to meditate on hairless cats just because I, I, I think that they're so unusual. I had a friend who had one, and I always wonder what was – like what gets me thinking is what – was the purpose of that cat. You know what I mean? Like, I get it's got a purpose to eat or, you know, chase mice or whatever, but what was the purpose of not giving it fur? You know, and it just really, it's just, if you sit and think about it, it really, I don't know, man, it really, it works your brain a little bit. It's true. Like, I think it was supposed to be um, so that people with cat allergies could have them, but it just ah. seems, yeah, it just seems cruel, though, to breed one without hair. Like, they, they look so helpless and just, and kind of, they're always just glaring at things, and I don't, I'm not a big fan. Corey loves them. He's always saying how he's going to own a farm with a million hairless cats, but I... Oh, I, yeah, I not that's really. a thought right there. Yeah, start a whole army of um, hairless cats. <laughs> that's a movie right there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, where can we watch Catfish Blues? Well, Catfish Blues is a perfect prime example of what we were talking about earlier, which is using an aggregator to go directly from the filmmaker to you guys, without meaning the audience. So what that means is I, I, we took the film to a, a group. It's called Distriber. Distribbers, for anybody who's filmmakers out there that are you know have films and they're like having problems with distributors or they're like not know where to go, you can look them up online. It's D I S T. R-I-B-B-R, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, they spell weirdly. Um, but anyways, it, it, they, they will help you to directly get your films onto the different platforms. So currently we have Catfish Blues on iTunes. We have it on Amazon. We have it up on Vimeo um, and you know for rent and for purchase. And uh, there's actually on the website, uh, the Grizzly Peak Films website, I think there's still some remaining. There's actually a special edition Blu-ray, I think, that we did in limited qualities, uh, qualities limited quantities, that um, has some special features on it, like an audio commentary and some different things. So those are the places to get it. Very cool. And where yeah. can we follow you to learn more about Catfish Blues and any other projects that you're working on in the future? Well, I would for you know for everybody out there that does the social media thing. I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter at Michael Worth, and uh, I'm on Facebook, of course, and Instagram. Even um, currently, we've got you know Catfish Blues out uh, a film called The Butterfly Guard is coming out earlier this year, and um, I have a documentary I've been working on with Severn Films that they do a lot of cult films. We we just got back from Asia last month where we. Went out and interviewed all the Shaw Brothers guys and, and Bruceploitation actors, and, and we're doing this um, documentary on Hong Kong filmmaking in the 70s. Very and, cool. Uh, yeah, and so that'll be coming out later this year, too. And But you know, like I said, Instagram, Michael Worth on Twitter, and uh, even Facebook will we'll keep you posted on there. And we have a website, grizzlypeakfilms.org. Uh, so you can find a lot of there's a lot of blog on there. So we, we'll be, when we're shooting this new movie, um, it's called The Sugar Moon Tribe. 
we start it uh, on Monday, actually. So we'll be updating a lot. You'll see it. And there you have it, folks. Catfish Blues, a film about a 90-year-old woman and a teenage boy finding lost animals and learning about themselves and each other. Created by Michael Wirth and produced by Grizzly Peak Films. Make sure to watch that film and all of Mike's other films. Mike, thank you for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Oh, you bet, buddy. Thank you, and I'll be listening. If you have an independent film you're working on and would like to discuss it, you can email us at bmoviebros at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at bmoviebros or my personal Twitter at bmoviepaul. Don't forget to listen to our podcast. We review a different B-movie each week. New episodes every Friday on our website, bmoviebros.com. If you have a movie you'd like us to review or any additional comments, feel free to leave a message below. This has been another B-movie interview. We are the B-movie bros saying... Be brave, be alive, and be back next time. Yeah, we, uh, <laughs>